Morena Tefano. We're coming into, well, the last week on Malachi and the last week on the Not-So-Minor Prophets. And uh, next week we start a whole new series called Fire and Smoke. I'll have an email out this week to just kind of give you a bit of a background about what we're going to be talking about over the following weeks. But this morning we're focusing on Malachi. Now, remember, Malachi is not a name. It's a description. We mistake it at times for it to be the prophet Malachi Whereas, actually, it's an angelic message. And the way the book has been unpacked, it's unpacked in a way of this kind of conversation between God and his people, predominantly his, his priests. And it's kind of this toing and froing. I hear this, I see this, and they respond, and then God responds back. And that's what goes on. There's about 26 different discourses in this book in which God challenges his people. Now, before I get into this last part, um, which I'm only going to focus on one particular part of Malachi that gets preached a lot. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think the finance team's going to love me by the end of this, uh, especially where we're all at. But it's that verse that everyone talks to whenever you hear anything about Malachi. But before that, I want to ask you this question. Has anyone heard of Hattie Mae Wyatt? No? How about the Reverend Russell Conwell? Yes, him! No. no. <laughs> um, anyone heard of the 57 cent story? Someone's heard it? Oh, yeah, well done. 57 cent story, I'll give you the background. Russell Conwell was a Baptist pastor at the turn uh, of the 20th century, end of the 19th century. He was in Philadelphia, and he had a small church, and they just didn't have any room for Sunday school. So the kids couldn't really attend church. They'd either sit at the back, or they would just play outside. There was no room for a Sunday school. So he wanted to start up a fund to raise money to get a Sunday school. And little Hattie was six years old, and he met her in the street, and she was really excited that he was going to get together some money to build them a Sunday school. Within months of that happening, Hattie died. She died of diphtheria at the age of six. And the mother came to him, to, to Russell, and said she was raising money herself. She had raised 57 cents. He was so taken that this little girl had raised this kind of money that he converted them into pennies, one-cent pennies, and he auctioned them off to the church, each penny, and raised $250, which at the time was a lot of money, enough to buy the little house next door, which was known figuratively by people around as the temple. The temple grew. They became a college. Today, it's known as a university in Philadelphia called Temple University. If anyone's heard of Temple University, a number of famous people have come out of it. Their football team wears little diamonds. Now, there's a reason for that, because Russell Conwell is not just known for this 57-cent story, which is a lovely story in and of itself. He's known for a sermon that he preached called Acres of Diamonds. It was so popular at the turn of the century that he preached it some 6,000 times to 6,000 different places. 
Everybody wanted to hear this sermon from him. And here's a line from it. He says this, I say to you, you ought to get rich, and it is your duty to get rich. The men who get rich may be the most honest men you'll find in the community. Let me say here clearly, this is a Baptist pastor, right? 98 out of 100 of the rich men of America are honest. That is why they are rich. That is why they are trusted with money. That is why they carry on great enterprises and find plenty of people to work with them. It is because they are honest men. I sympathize with the poor, but the number of poor who are to be sympathized with is very small. To sympathize with a man whom God has punished for his sins is to do wrong. Let us remember, there is not a poor person in the United States who was not made poor by his own shortcomings. Do I hear an amen? (laughs) This was popular at the turn of the century. So popular that people were asking him to come and speak everywhere. And the reason why Temple University has little diamonds on their football team jerseys and their basketball team jerseys. The name of the sermons called Acres of Diamonds, it became the seed of what we know today as the prosperity gospel. And look, let's just take a step back. That was offensive for some of you. But you know, every church I've been in, it seems like to me that the rich people have an undue amount of influence in the way churches are run. Whether we like it or not, whether we believe it or not, we sure do act it out at times. The power play that goes on sometimes usually only happens with people with wealth. That silenced a few people, didn't it? No amens there, but this is where the seeds of prosperity have come from. There was a lot going on at the turn of the 20th century. Now, I'm giving you a bit of a backstory to get to the verse I want to be talking to you about. But the seeds of prosperity gospel came in a number of different ways. And I don't think it was always the intention of some of these people to get there. But these were the seeds that were laid. First, it started off with the Manifest Destiny, which was basically an American political ideology of the exceptionalism of America. This happened in the early 19th century while America was expanding out west. But with the Schofield Bible and dispensationalism and John Darby, they really latched on to this exceptionalism without Christianity. And so the Schofield Bible, which is one of the first Bibles that came out with a commentary on it, so that people who couldn't understand what the passage was about, they could read a commentary on it, and it proved very popular. It came out, again, towards the end of the 19th century, at the turn of the 20th, and the Schofield Bible was heaped in a Christian form of manifest destiny, a Christian form of exceptionalism, a Christian form of we are it. Add to that the acres of diamonds that was making its rounds, another guy by the name of Charles Fox Parnham who had this revelation. Again, late 19th century, early 20th century, he started a Bible college in Kansas. He was ridiculed for it because he was teaching a form of spiritualism that the church had never heard of before. That is, 
baptism of the Holy Spirit that no one had ever heard of before. And the only way you could be baptized in the Holy Spirit was exhibit some sort of spirituality that was exceptional or phenomenal, like speaking in tongues. They ridiculed him for some time. He is basically the father of the Assemblies of God, which came out of the Pentecostal movement. But he was heavily influenced by ideas around exceptionalism. And one of his guys who was teaching there, who was being taught there, ended up as Azusa Street, which was in Los Angeles at the time. But across the world, a great revival was happening in, in Wales. Evan Roberts, amazing man, who couldn't handle what was going on. In fact, after what, just a few years of revival, he literally reclused himself from it because he really didn't want it to be about himself. He wanted God to get the glory. But without his knowledge and what was going on in Wales, the thing about the Welsh revival was that had never happened before was this revival that occurred not with such great speaking or heady knowledge or good Bible-based teaching. There was a movement of the Spirit. There was music. This was different from past revivals. There was a movement of the supernatural. It was wow. I think so wow that in Wales, like, drunkenness had dropped by 50%. That's how much influence the Welsh Revival had on society. But the negative out of that was this idea of supernatural revival, which then influenced the Azusa Street Revival. Married with Charles Fox Parnham's ideas around, you know, exceptionalism and exhibitions, thank you, (laughs) of the spirit. In fact, many revivals since then have mimicked the model of the Welsh Revival. But there was something that came out of Azusa Street that changed a lot of things. We call it today Pentecostalism. And out of Pentecostalism, really, a branch of that really dived into what we now call prosperity gospel. These gentlemen, uh, E.W. Kenyon, who was influenced by Parnham, really the father of the Word of Faith movement, he was influenced by this idea that we could speak words over people. Again, ridiculed quite a lot at the time, but the power of words over people. Oral Roberts then added the power of wealth. Kevin Hagen then formed the Word of Faith movement, which we know today quite well if you've ever watched the Trinity Broadcasting Network. And we see Kenneth Copeland flies around in his jets. It's fascinating how prosperity gospels influenced us, whether we like it or not. Most of you saw me this morning wearing my jacket. Now Rob's not got his jacket on. Is there a different Rob up here, or is it the same Rob? But our impression is, if you wore his jacket, I might take him more seriously. If he didn't have those tattoos, and if he lost a little bit of weight, maybe I could take him a little bit more seriously. Prosperity teaching. This is the verse that we hear quite often. 
Malachi 3.10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. And today we see it, whether we like it or not, in so many movements that we have today to rise at Hillsong. People like Joel Austin or Joseph Prince. I was always told appearance is very important, Rob, if you want to be taken seriously. I said, sure, in the business world, but in God's world? Aren't I supposed to be naked before him? No, we don't want to see you naked, Rob. I don't want to see any of you naked. But there's this fascination how appearance, the way we act, how we look, it's all fundamentally from this prosperity gospel and really born out of this whole idea that poor old Malachi gets taken completely out of context. That actually it's got nothing to do for us today in this regard. Anyone know who Malachi is addressed to? Those of you who've read it. Thank you. Well done. I'm going to miss you, Sam. It is. It's addressed to the priests. It's not addressed to the nation of Israel. It's addressed solely to the priests of Israel. Anyone understand? This is what he says. It is you, priests, who show contempt for my name. It is you, priests, this warning is for you. It is, and he sits, he says this, he will sit as a resign of fire and purify of silver. He'll purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. He's talking to the priests, not to the nation. The book of Malachi is to the leaders. He goes on. What are the priests doing? Well, this is what they're doing. They're profaning God's whole process of redemption by just kind of, oh, do we have to do this again? Uh, what's this all about? Ugh. And you can read, it's the food that's contemptible. What a burden. You sniff at it contemptuously. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals, when your offerings are just, you know better than this, shouldn't you? Should I accept them from your hands? And then he says this, which I find really fascinating. God's saying this to the Levites. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, deprive the foreigners among you of justice, but do not fear me. He's talking again about the priests. For once, when we're reading the Bible, this is not about you guys, it's about me. Or people in my position. But I would actually put it out there because as Baptists, we're all one amongst equals. So it's not just about me, it's about all of us. It's fascinating when I hear leaders preaching this and challenging their congregation to give more when actually the challenge should be redirected at them. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Most people don't read what happened before this point. So to give it context, let's just go back a couple of verses. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. And then he goes on to say, you are under a curse, 
your whole nation because you are robbing me. The, your nation because you are robbing me. Not the people, but the people are going to suffer for it because you are robbing me. So when you hear a pastor preaching this, telling you that you need to tithe more, ask them, who was God talking to about this? Who was he directing this verse to? Nehemiah unpacks it a little bit more of what's going on. So remember I told you at the beginning a couple of sermons ago, you know, the context of where we were, same time as Nehemiah. Nehemiah has this point. He was saying, uh, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, who was stealing, right? And he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine, olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians and gatekeepers as well as the contribution for the priest. When he finds this out, he gets really mad because he's over back home in Babylon. He comes back to Jerusalem and says, who allowed this? You're stealing from God. He's talking to the Levites. So we get context of where and what Malachi is actually about. Make sense? Jeremy Myers, when he, you know, on a, an article he wrote on tithing, he said, even if it was directed at the people rather than the priests, the blessing for obedience and the cursing for disobedience were consequences for the people of Israel living under Mosaic law. Followers of Jesus are not under the law of Moses. Which leads me to another point. The Old Testament tithe is not for us today. Does not apply to us today. And if anyone tells you otherwise, they're going to find themselves in a bit of trouble. Because you cannot take one part of the law and make it a law today without taking the whole law. Galatians 3, 10 to 11 says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. So, let's ask the question, does this passage have any relevance for us today? Does it mean anything for us today? Oh, yeah, it still does. Because in Jesus' time, he confronts the leaders. Everyone know the story of the widow's might? Everyone knows it. Anyone know what happens just a couple of verses before then? Because the widow's might, everyone takes that as a story and of its own. But I'm going to open your eyes a little bit to the wider story that's going on here. It starts off here, verses 38 to 40. Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and greeted with respect in the marketplaces. They love sneakers, really, really expensive sneakers. Uh, and they have important seats in the synagogue and places of honour at the banquets. They have great jets and wonderful cars. They devour widows' houses 
and for a show make lengthy prayers, these men will be punished most severely. Guess what the next verses are? Truly, I tell you, the widow goes, drops money in, and Jesus says in verse 44, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put everything, all she had to live on. It wasn't to just lift up what a great servant this woman was. He's actually highlighting an injustice. He's gone back to Malachi 3.10. You guys are stealing and the people are paying for it. Look, they're devouring widows' houses. Look at this widow. She's giving everything. While these guys go around in their flashy cars. While we hold up this story of the widow and all she gave, and we then tell people, you need to give everything and use her as the example, we miss a very important part of what this story is actually about. That actually she gave everything and it was an injustice to God. Yes, she gave everything. And yes, rightly, she's held up for that. But don't lose what Jesus is trying to say here. And that is the injustice that is going on. That she as a widow is having her house devoured by the rich rulers who should know better. So does this passage have any relevance for us today? I guess the question is actually more like this. What does it mean to tithe today? So if we don't have to give this, by the way, arbitrary number of 10%, because if we really want to follow the Old Testament, we're talking somewhere in the vicinity of 35%. Because 10% went to the Levites, 10% went to the temple, 10% went to festivals, and every, every jubilee seven years, uh, a whole crop was given to the poor. So it's a lot of money. So what does it mean to tithe today? There's a great article. If you want to read more of it, let me know. I'll send you the link. The Gospel Coalition has a great talk on this, on tithing. And I'm just taking a snippet out of it. It says, even though tithing isn't required today, we are commanded to support those who preach the gospel Verses there, and while we should enjoy the good things God gives us, we're also called to be generous to those in need. And wealth can so easily be an idol, leading us to abandon the Lord, since God is to be our treasure. Believers are to give generously and freely. And for many in the West, this will mean giving more than 10%. Still, Scripture doesn't command Christians to give a tenth, and Scripture, not tradition, is our rule and authority. You don't really get me quoting the Gospel Coalition that often. But actually, this, this article on tithing is amazing. All the misconceptions, all the twisting of words, they, they tackle it with seven points. They're not Baptists. They can't stick with three. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7, if people come to me and say, so what, what do I give? You heard about the cafe. I can't even begin to tell you how much has been given to that. Not just in money, time and effort. And they've blessed us. Your time is as valuable as your money is. 
Your heart is as valuable as whatever you may lay at the altar. We acknowledge as followers of Jesus Christ that we are not our own, that everything is his. So when someone asks me, what, what should I give? I usually quote this verse. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Amen. Now, I'm going to sit here and tell you that my wages are dependent on what you give. Our staff, who actually work way more hours that we're paying them, rely on what we give. The space that you're in costs a lot to maintain. So we do rely on your giving, but only give according to what your heart gives. Don't feel guilty about giving. We don't want it. You give what you can. Don't be caught up in these fearful, chain-binding lies. The truth will set you free. Let God dictate how you give, when you give, and how much you should give. Let him and you do it. greatness of Jesus Christ is the openness that he gives us. The chains are broken. Do not be tied down to these worldly things. You'll never see me in expensive sneakers, believe me. You know, people say, you shouldn't be buying Apple, Rob. That's the exception, right? Because there's always an exception to the rule. There's always the exception. <laughs> that, that's, that's, in short, as much as I can do in the short amount of time, what Malachi is saying in that verse. So I hope you are better equipped now to face that when you are confronted with it, when you do feel guilt about it. Rather than feeling guilt about it, you support your family without even thinking twice. It's the same thing for God's work. You support it without thinking twice in whatever way you can. I'll ask our music team to come up. Sorry, finance team. I know we're in a lot of financial issues at the moment. I should be, I should be um, giving the guilt trip right now, but I can't. Um, Father God, um, everything is yours. Everything we own, this place, this space, our lives are yours, Lord. Forgive us, Father. Forgive us that at times we do manipulate people to get what we need. And sometimes we're desperate and we don't turn to you. But help us, Lord, help us to reflect more of the glory, the grace, the generosity that you exhibited in our lives. Uh, help us, Lord, to be mindful and wise with what we do, with what you've given us whether it be money, whether it be our talents or our time. And bless us, Lord, as we continue. We want to see your work happening here, Lord. And, you know, I, yeah, we give it to you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.